The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Victoria Moran. If we're meeting for the first time, hi, thanks for stopping by. If you'd like to know more about what Main Street Vegan does, just stop in at MainStreetVegan.net and you can find out about everything that we do in addition to this wonderful weekly podcast for which we appreciate Unity Online Radio lots and lots for sponsoring us live every Wednesday since 2012 and podcasted forever and ever. So if you haven't checked out the archives to this program, please do. We've talked to a lot of fascinating folks. I also want to extend a hearty thank you very much to this episode's sponsor, Vegan Outreach. You may know that Vegan Outreach works to create a vegan world. Well, they have an opportunity for you right now to make an incredible difference for animals. A group of donors has pledged to match your donation to Vegan Outreach so that it will go twice as far in persuading more people to go vegan. Your $50 donation becomes $100 and so on. So don't miss this chance to double the good you can do for animals. Make your tax-deductible donation now at veganoutreach.org. Thanks so much, uh, everybody at Vegan Outreach. I am so pleased to um, initiate, inaugurate uh, today's very interesting program. After the break, we're going to be doing something different. We're going to be speaking with an ally who doesn't happen to be vegan, 
but he is oh so big in the dog world. And I think it's really important that we have dialogue and friendship with people who are companion animal folks, wildlife people, environmental advocates. It's sort of like if the Catholics and the Episcopalians and the Anglicans can't talk to each other, how do we expect for all kinds of people who are really different to talk to one another? So it it will be really, really fun to speak with W. Bruce Cameron. You may have seen the trailer already for the fabulous feature film, A Dog's Purpose, uh, based on his book and for which he is also the co-screenwriter. So that's going to be lots of barky fun. After the break, but right now, I am so happy to introduce to you somebody that I have known for a long, long time, someone that I admire a lot, and that is David Benzequin. He is a really big deal in the vegan food world, but he started in the animal ethics world, and his heart is still there. And I just have a feeling that the food tastes better when the heart is in the right place. David Benzequin is the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods, maker of tomato sushi, a delicious plant-based alternative to raw bluefin tuna. It was developed by world-renowned certified master chef James Corwell and is currently available at Fresh & Co. stores throughout New York City. And in fact, if you are in this part of the world, stop in at Fresh & Co. and you can get samples and coupons this week and next week. Welcome, David Benzequin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for Tomato Sushi. I have to tell you that uh, my assistant Danielle and I went to Fresh & Co. yesterday in Midtown Manhattan. They treated us like royalty. They let us try everything because they knew you were going to be on the show. And they gave us a lot of background about how this incredible chef and, and the other people in this company have figured out how to make a tomato look and taste like tuna in sushi. Incredible. Absolutely. The founder of the company, uh, Master Chef James Corwell, spent many years developing this product using his exceptional palate and talent in the kitchen. And we're just so excited to have it featured so wonderfully at Fresh & Co. Well, it's brand new. And so obviously only in New York City right this minute, but I know that you have all sorts of um, national launching planned. But give us first a little bit of history. What caused this chef to want to make a substitute for raw bluefin tuna? Sure. So Chef James Corwell has been working in restaurants all over the world for many, many years. Uh, He was a teacher at the Culinary Institute of America. And the Certified Master Chef program, which we've mentioned, is an honor bestowed upon only a few dozen people in the whole country by the American Culinary Federation who have mastered many different kinds of cuisine. You spend many years training for that, and he's one of under 70 in the country, so it's an extraordinary honor. Uh, A number of years ago, Jimmy, as we call him, uh, Chef Corwell, was in Japan, and he visited the Tsukiji Fish Market. It's the largest fish market in the world, and there are several buildings there that are each the size of or bigger than football fields. And every single day, they bring in tons, literally thousands of tons of sea animals, including many, many tons of bluefin tuna. And for those who don't know, 
one of the reasons that bluefin tuna is so extraordinarily expensive, sometimes selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars per fish, is because they're nearly extinct. They've been on the endangered watch list for many years, and our consumption of tuna is so extraordinary and is just not sustainable. So uh, Jimmy was in the fish market, and he saw what was there, and he realized that it just couldn't continue this way. And so he decided that while continuing to work in the food industry full-time, he would dedicate all of his spare time to creating a delicious plant-based alternative to bluefin tuna that honors and builds on the culinary tradition of sushi and of tartare and other beautiful traditional raw fish preparations, but also brings forth sustainability and compassion. Well, I'm so glad that he did it, but it sure took him a long time. This was quite a process. It was. You know, we really um, pride ourselves on having a product that is extraordinarily clean in its ingredients and that is made with the most care and with only the highest quality product. And so while there there would be ways to develop certain things, maybe in using a lot of processing, this one's really about simple, um, complex in in their uh, level of complexity, but simple in terms of technology. It's really about celebrating uh, technique more than technology. And so the product is extremely clean. And in order to bring that flavor and that texture forward without using a lot of wild food science and technology, it took some real time and expertise and curiosity to test and play in the kitchen. Well, it it tastes very, very good. To me, I wasn't saying, oh, this tastes like raw tuna because I've never had raw tuna. But it does have that texture that we think of in, in some of the faux meats, and yet it's a tomato, <laughs> an amazing thing. Now, I want to ask you about the name about the name Tomato Sushi. And listeners, if you want to find out more about this, go to tomatosushi.com. It's also Tomato Sushi on Facebook and on Twitter. But when I went to Fresh & Co. yesterday, I was expecting to get a a roll, like I would go to a Japanese restaurant and get a cucumber roll or an avocado roll, because that's what I think of as sushi. And yet, instead of that, there were all these really interesting dishes, one of which was sort of like what I think of sushi, and the other things weren't even close. So why do you call this tomato sushi instead of tomato tuna? Sure. So when the product was first developed, the expected placement of the product was in a sushi application, as you mentioned, in a roll or as sashimi on top of rice, you know, and other forms like that. But As the product was tasted by consumers, we realized that it had such a broader usage and that it could actually be used in any time that you'd have raw tuna. So it's something that can be used in ceviche, like a traditional Latin preparation with citrus. It can be used in tartare for a very high-end experience or in any of the Japanese preparations we've mentioned or in what's known as poke, which is a very trendy now Hawaiian salad preparation of raw fish. And Fresh & Co. has chosen to take multiple different interpretations of the tomato sushi product and incorporate it with incredible ingredients like charred pineapple and hijiki and grapefruit juice, pickled red onions, and all these amazing ingredients to make really complex, delicious dishes, some of which are more filling, some of which are more light, 
to satisfy anybody any time of the day with a diverse array of options. And to have it that way. Everything that we tried yesterday was fabulous. It was one of those things where, oh, I really like that. Oh, I like this even more. Oh, no, this is the best. (laughs) But I do think with 24 hours past, I have to say that that poke salad was the thing that I will go back for time and time again. That that was exceptional. And and the way that this this tomato sushi, this interestingly textured piece of entree, I don't know <laughs> what you'd even say. It was it was stunning. And I'm sure you don't share anything at all of the process or maybe a little bit. The process is secret. Our, our ingredients are not secret, and all of our ingredients are listed on our website, and uh, they're very simple. Uh, we use soy sauce and a uh, little unrefined sugar and uh, some other very basic things like that. Um, but the process is a trade secret. Um, it did take many years to develop, and it's something that uh, you know we do have to keep close to the vest, but we're very proud of it. Um, I also will mention that in future stores and restaurants and places where we'll be selling the product, we do expect that many of them will choose to feature it in sushi rolls or in other sushi applications, but that there will be other times where it won't be. We look forward to having it available to people in many different formats, along with other products, which we are currently developing. Wonderful. Now, one of the things that um, I was talking with yesterday with the Fresh & Co. uh, publicity lady was that some people there, and of course, Fresh & Co., it's very interesting um, fast, casual dining experience. It's not all vegetarian. And so they're appealing to people who are interested in health, whether they're plant-based or or something else. But she said that some people had said, well, is this protein? Now, you and I as vegans know there is protein in everything that grows out of the ground. It it doesn't have to be the kind of concentration of protein that one would, would find in an animal product. But is that a question that you get? And if so, how do you answer it? Sure, we have heard that question. And, you know, in the dishes that Fresh & Co. has prepared, they've really been very thoughtful about what kind of ingredients they could pair with the tomato sushi to bring the nutritional profile to anything that people would want, depending on the dish. So a lot of the dishes have some form of seaweed, which gives you a lot of those omegas and B12s. A lot of the dishes have cashews or other things of that nature and quinoa that can bring a really wonderful, robust, and complete protein. And so depending on what people are looking for, the nice thing about this ingredient is that it's so versatile, it can be used in a light snack it can be used a very rich fulfilling dish and so if you're looking for a particular nutritional profile it can go with something that will certainly incorporate that and you never have to worry that it has any of the mercury any of the toxins any of the cholesterol or other unhealthy things that typically would be found in tuna what do you think it's going to take for the general public to shift their opinion on fish in general? It seems that with meat, people are kind of like, yeah, okay, all right, I get it. It's not that great. I just want to eat it. But with fish, it's like, oh, I, I, ha- I have to have my salmon. Do you see that shifting at all? I do. I think that for for so much, for so long, the primary methods of encouraging people to think about their diets has been through education and advocacy. And one thing that I think was missed out on for a long time, but is now really coming 
to bear on the movement is an understanding that not only do we need to educate people and encourage them and support them in making good choices, we also need to make it convenient, accessible, delicious, desirable, affordable, and fun. And as incredible chefs like Jimmy and others are able to develop products that provide that incredible experience so that nobody has to sacrifice taste or a culinary experience like having a turkey on Thanksgiving with something that's not made from turkey or having delicious sushi experience without endangering a species as we make more delicious products and market them in a way that shows people they don't lose out on anything i think we'll be able to really make it um more convenient and possible for people who wouldn't have otherwise considered to make those changes Mm. Well, I, I love that list of words that you use to describe what we're, we're moving toward. In fact, it almost sounded like dating advice. You want to look for somebody when you do your online dating who's convenient, accessible, desirable, affordable, and fun. <laughs> so for food and romance, remember those words. So, uh, David, very quickly in our last minute or so, are you doing tomato sushi all the time? I know that you also have the company Plant-Based Solutions, and you're a great resource for vegan food businesses. Thank you very much. Yes, so uh, Tomato Sushi is a partnership between its founder, Chef James Corwell, and my company, Plant-Based Solutions. We are very, very honored to be working with them and to be a part of that team uh, to bring the product to market and now to grow it. Uh, We are, as Victoria mentioned, planning to launch it nationally and internationally quite quickly. So we ask that you stay tuned to our Facebook and our Twitter uh, to find out where we'll be coming to a place near you. And yes, in addition to my work with Tomato Sushi, we do support other, in, through our work at Plant-Based Solutions, we do work with other plant-based products to help in market and brand them and bring them to the world. Ah, and the world needs them. And I'm so happy that you're going to be uh, coming on as an instructor for our master class this June at Main Street Vegan Academy and help all our vegan lifestyle coaches and entrepreneurs uh, grow bigger and better and change the world while they're doing it. So thank you so much, David Bensequin. Plant-Based Solutions, Tomato Sushi, yum. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All the best. And everybody else, stay with us because we're going to talk about books and movies and writing and most of all, dogs. Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world. We count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss, through lecture, live interviews and call-in questions, spiritual healing, prayer, prosperity, forgiveness, new thought views about eternal life, and much more. The world is waiting for your truth transformation, only on Unity Online Radio. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. In the first segment, I was talking with David Bensequin about going to Fresh and Co. yesterday to try the tomato sushi. And the lovely young woman, the Fresh and Co. representative there, was asking about the program and what was going to happen today. And I told her about our other guest, whom I'm about to introduce to you. I said, have you seen the trailer for this incredible movie, A Dog's Purpose? And she said, no, but that was a book. I read the book, which was very cool. But a lot of people read the book because uh, it was a New York Times bestseller, not the only one for our next guest, W. Bruce Cameron, the author of A Dog's Purpose. And it was on the bestseller list for 52 weeks. We all know that's a year. That's a long time and amazing. The second novel in the series, A Dog's Journey, was also a New York Times bestseller. And a dog, the A Dog's Purpose series comes to the screen January 27th, 2017, with Cameron and his wife, Catherine Michon, as screenwriters on the project. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. Well, it's such an honor to have you. I actually, listeners, I met Bruce's wife, Catherine Michon, about 10 years ago. We were both at a book event at a place in Jefferson, Texas, called Beauty and the Book, the world's only beauty salon 
bookstore. And Catherine had written um, her girl genius book. And we really hit it off. And then she told me that she was married to this amazing writer who had had books that had turned into TV and all sorts of things. And then not long ago, I'm at the movie theater and there's this trailer. And I clutched my husband's hand and said, I need to see it 15 times. And that is a dog's purpose. So go see the trailer and certainly go see the movie when it comes out in January. But, um, Bruce, you think that before anybody sees the movie, they need to read the books. Tell us why. Well, yeah, that's a (laughs) it sounds like a very self-serving declaration that you should run out and get the book before the movie. But um, as a screenwriter, I'll tell you that when you adapt a book, the big problem is that you're just cutting stuff. Because, you know, a book is, is several hundred pages long, and uh, a movie is a hundred pages long with very wide margins. And so uh, it's all about what you what you throw away. And in this case, uh, there's so much to the, some of these characters that is that they just don't have time to put into a, a movie, and I get that. But I think that it will be very helpful for people to track what is going on and to really understand some of the characters if they read uh, the book before the movie. In fact, that's kind of the, that's the hashtag. Not that I understand hashtags that well, but it's hashtag book before movie. I guess that's some kind of movement. I imagine people are marching in the streets and I don't know, doing sit-ins at their office or something like that, protesting people not reading the book before the movie. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. As a kid, I read Gone with the Wind before I saw the movie it was harder at that time to see old movies and when i saw the movie and realized that they had eliminated scarlet's first three children (laughs) i was absolutely appalled and that was not a short movie so okay we'll read the book we'll see the movie but in all honesty bruce i'm always telling people oh my gosh i saw this movie it was so great this may be the first time I have ever said, oh, my gosh, I saw this trailer. It's so great. You have to see this trailer. Tell us about the amazing story that has got me so excited. Well, A, a Dog's Purpose is the story of uh, a one very special dog who reincarnates and remembers each of his lives. And so he becomes, and sometimes he's a she, becomes wiser and wiser with every life and eventually concludes that there's a purpose, a reason for this. And finding that purpose is probably why, uh, what it needs to do in order to stop reincarnating. In other words, that's why it keeps reincarnating is to find its purpose. So uh, it's a, you might say it's an existential spiritual journey that this dog is on, searching for purpose in life. Uh, against the backdrop of being reborn over and over again. And and the relationship with humans. Oh, my goodness. So sweet. And all of us who have relationships with dogs or have had them in, in the past can, can really relate to that. So do you believe in reincarnation for dogs or humans or anybody? Uh, you know, it's not a fundamental core belief of mine, I'm open to the idea, although I really don't want to do eighth grade again. I just. 
Yeah, it's so funny as a writer. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this because you have so many readers and so many people who have have also been exposed to your work in other media. But whenever you put information out, even in the form of a story, people pick it up and act on it. And probably a lot of people will see this movie and start looking into reincarnation, even though that wasn't your purpose. <laughs> Now, that could happen, and I'm okay with that. I, I like it. I like the idea of people being touched by this story, and I do get a lot of people who have emailed me or Facebooked me and said that they really felt like this story touched them in ways that they had not expected. It's a, It seems like a simple story. It's just a dog story. But uh, on the other hand, it's uh, about some very profound things. Uh, a dog's purpose touches on uh, true love, the real true love of a dog for a person and um, tells us that our real friends are there if we just know where to look. Mm. I don't think anything is really simple when it comes to dogs and humans, because I think the love is so pure on both sides. It's really not anything that that we're trained to do in a human-to-human setting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I think that, that uh, the, the, there's a good, a really good reason for that, which is that, you know, we've been breeding dogs forever. We, we interfered with the evolutionary tree and we pulled wolves into our lives back in the Paleolithic era. And ever since then, we have been uh, breeding them to our will. And one of the most important things was that they had to like us. They had to be loyal to us. And in the process, their presence in our lives changed us. People who were successful uh, with their dogs, using their dogs uh, to herd sheep or using their dogs to hunt, those people uh, wound up uh, more likely to survive and have offspring. And so we evolved with each other, dogs and humans, uh, to be dependent on each other. So one of the reasons why the love is so pure and so honest is it is literally biological. Well, there's nothing like it. I had cats for my whole adult life, and then we adopted a dog, and I love my cats. My cats were wonderful. I had a cat that everybody that I knew swore was some kind of spiritual healer. They just wanted to come over if they were feeling bad and have this cat sit on them, and, and they were determined to feel better, and they did. But when I really got to know our first dog as an adult, I saw that 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 personality and that character was really unlike anybody I'd ever known. And now I have my little amazing dog, Forbes. And of course, everything he does, we just think it's so brilliant. Um, A couple of weeks ago, the alarm clock was going off and I had forgotten about it. And in comes Forbes with the alarm clock in his mouth and drops it on the floor as if to say, you have a thumb, deal with this. <laughs> and of course, I'm just like, oh my gosh, my dog is so brilliant. We do get very attached. Oh, yeah. He sounds brilliant. I don't know that my dog Tucker would do anything. He would just probably just get a disgusted look. He's really good at that. He can could, he could give me a disgusted look like when it's raining here in Los Angeles which it doesn't do very often, and I take him out for a walk. When he, when we walk out the door, he gives me this look like, are, are you aware that it's wet out here? Aw, 
Now, is Tucker, did he come from your daughter's shelter? I know your daughter has uh, an animal shelter in Colorado. My daughter animal rescue in Colorado, uh, in Denver, called Life is Better Rescue. And uh, it is, uh, it's true. What happened was, you know, her, her mission is to go into shelters where uh, they're, they're scheduled to euthanize a pet for some reason. Usually it's a medical problem. Sometimes it's behavioral. And my daughter will say, I can save this one. We can pay for the operation. Uh, we can heal this, this ill dog and cats and even horses and, and a couple of chickens. And, they, and so she will adopt them, or rather she will rescue them, rehabilitate them, and then adopt them out to a loving family. So when some person, some, I just don't understand people like this, but in the middle of the night dropped off a cardboard box full of newborn puppies, I mean, literally slick with birth that had just been born. And he threw them in a box and took them to the animal shelter and dumped them on the front stoop. When they arrived the next morning and opened the box, there were three puppies in there that were alive that, that uh, they knew at the shelter they couldn't do anything with because it takes so much work to bottle feed a puppy. So they called my daughter and my daughter said, well, I've got a, I've got a lactating German shepherd and she just weaned her pups. Let's see. And so she took up the, these three puppies into the lactating German shepherd and introduced them. And uh, that's how Tucker survived. The, oh. them, literally nursed them uh, to life, kept them alive. Uh, and, and so then my daughter, uh, Georgia said, we've got, I've got a very special dog. His name is Tucker and, uh, I'm bringing him out to you. And, uh, we were a little hesitant. Catherine's dog had died. My dog had died. We thought we didn't want to go through that again. We live in a high rise. So having a puppy seemed kind of an insurmountable challenge. Uh, and then they handed the uh, Georgia, my daughter, handed Catherine, my wife, the puppy, and Catherine said, this is my dog. <laughs> oh. That's, oh. All the- <laughs> that, that's a very, very sweet story. And, and I'm sure Tucker has some uh, inspiration job for you as a writer of books about dogs. Oh, yeah. He, matter of fact, he, he answers all my email. <laughs> job is to, uh, yeah, his job is to remind me what dogs are really like. Uh, sometimes I get, you know, I write a book from a dog's point of view, a dog's purpose, and uh, a dog's journey. The two books in the series so far tell the story of this dog from the dog's point of view, and it's a real dog, uh, meaning there are books out there where the dogs talk. Sometimes they talk to other animals. They talk to each other. This is not the case. In this particular book, the dog is a dog. It has a limited vocabulary. Uh, uh, sit and listen. Tucker is two feet from me right now and can hear every word I'm saying. So <laughs> a dog, but a dog doesn't necessarily understand. His ears are twitching every time I say the word dog. So I know that he recognizes that word. Yes. And what it is that I'm doing, making these sounds and throwing dog in there every once in a while. <laughs> of the dogs and a dog's purpose and a dog's journey to the world. They don't really understand most of what's going on. And yet they do it so well. I find it interesting, Bruce, that that we have spawned very similar children. 
because my daughter has a um, refuge for wildlife. It's obviously um, not full-time around the year because in New York City we basically have uh, squirrel, possum, and bunny seasons and then the occasional uh, injured uh, urban mammal in between. But it's pretty cool to look at your kid and say, wow, that's a selfless and wonderful thing to do. So congratulations to you on that. And uh, we'll put a link to Life is Better on the MainStreetVegan.net show notes. So anybody that wants to check them out out there in Denver and see some of uh, the other dogs, not Tucker. Tucker's in L.A. He's got a family. So, Bruce, talk to us about writing, because I know a lot of writers and a lot of aspiring writers listen to this program. And I know that that you were a Midwestern boy and uh, lived for part of your growing up in the Kansas City area, where I'm from as well. But when I actually heard about you, you were in L.A., and your one of your works was already famous. How did it all happen? Yeah, uh, I had uh, an overnight success that only took me like 30 years to get there. I had always wanted to be a writer. I assumed I was going to be a writer. I sold the very first short story I ever wrote. I was 16. Uh, that really uh, did, was not good. That was not good for me because it convinced me that I had this thing licked already, that I didn't really need to go to college, although I did. But I was an English major. I didn't, I didn't take any classes that would have any application to the business life that I wound up having to live while I supported my writing habit. Which for a long time, that's how I think everyone regarded it. It was just some odd habit I had that I would sit and write books all the time because I wrote nine unpublished novels along the way toward becoming a professional writer. Uh, I had started an Internet uh, column. Uh, I called it the Cameron Column, which is not very inspired, but that's there it is. Uh, it still exists, but it doesn't have very many subscribers anymore because spam sort of wiped it out. But back before spam, when you got a computer for Christmas, you're like, well, what do I do with this thing? And one of them was to subscribe to the Cameron column. So at one point I had uh, uh, 50,000 subscribers in 52 countries. And uh, and that convinced the Rocky Mountain News to pick me up as a, as a local columnist. I was living in Denver at the time. So um, I wrote this one column, Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. And I knew I had something because I received so much email over the next couple of days that it took me about half a year to respond to all of it. People wrote me from all over the country, got picked up by the wires and published in newspapers and uh, all over the the northern hemisphere and even in England. And I thought, okay, all right, there's something here. And so uh, I had managed to find a literary agent who was trying to get traction for me and has had been unable to get me anything. And I, I wrote up a proposal under her direction. We sent it off to New York and sold eight simple rules for dating my teenage daughter for what for what was then uh, not a very impressive advance. But, it, hey, it was my first book. I was absolutely thrilled. And then a, uh, a producer out here in Hollywood read it and sent me an email and said, we want to turn this into a movie. And I flew out and met with them, and they agreed to let me write the, the first draft of the screenplay and then uh, that was at 
Touchstone uh, or ABC, and then ABC uh, decided to develop it as a TV series. And it wasn't long before uh, Eight Simple Rules was on the air with John Ritter playing me. <laughs> and uh, the, the people in the family kind of slotted the same way it was described in the book. And that's when I moved to L.A., and that's when my career really took off. So it was, uh, it was a very odd path in that it was all failure for so long. And then with one hit, uh, my career was transformed. And how did that change you? Did it take you a while to get it? Like, oh, my gosh, finally, I'm here. Now what do I do? I I think that uh, I'm kind of a climber. I think I'm always reaching for the next rung. So having uh, successfully sold that book, I wanted to do another one, which I did. I tried to sell that to TV. I did, but they didn't make the pilot. Then I wrote another book called Eight Simple Rules for Marrying My Daughter. We sold that as a movie. They didn't shoot it. I started to understand, oh, in Hollywood, you can work and you can actually make a good living and never have anything produced. And that looked like it was going to be my career for a long time. It changed me in that I no longer had to work a day job in finance. Um, I no longer had to support my habit. Now my habit supported me. Uh, but I, all it meant was that I got to write more. And uh, I didn't have to write. But if I went on a vacation, it didn't mean that vacation had always before been I'm on vacation. Good. I can write. And now it was like, I'm on vacation. I'm taking a break from writing. It was a, that, that was a big difference. Otherwise I, I just think that I, I have always been so driven and so full of stories that I want to write that all the rest of it is just part of the business of writing. And, and the joy of writing has not changed for me. The, the, the wonder of it, the, of being able to sit down and love that that clean white piece of paper. Now it's a white screen, and I love typing the words in there for the first time and seeing the story develop before my very eyes. Um, that is still a thrill for me, as fun for me now as it was when I started trying to write when I was in fourth grade. And uh, so that part has never changed, and that's probably the good thing. That that is, I have not gotten arrogant around that. I know that it's a real gift that I can fill that blank page full of words and I, and I, uh, I don't take it for granted. So what's, what's your day? People are always fascinated by how writers live. My dog is barking. Sorry about that. That's okay. Hi, Tucker. <laughs> I'm sorry. So go ahead. Yeah, your, your, your day, you know, because I know people ask me this a lot, and sometimes I'm actually embarrassed because so much of my day is involved in other aspects of all the kind of multi-lane business that I have these days. I almost feel like I remember when I was just a writer, when I, I first wrote articles for many years, and then books and articles, but now I feel like there's just so much that isn't writing that just as those people ask me what my writer's day looks like, I want to ask you what your writer's day looks like because maybe you do more writing. I, I think I struggle with that just as much. In fact, <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to train myself not to check email when I first wake up. Because Amen. Of- I got that one too. <laughs> do you know about uh, the Freedom app? Have it. It's. You know, 
when I'm willing to turn it on, it changes everything. <laughs> My problem is, is that I have so many online tools that I use during the course of writing. I use a thesaurus and a dictionary, and I also uh, will jump to the internet to look up something. Uh, and so I have found well, that I have to, I have to but I turn off my email. The new freedom does let you have all that access. It, it automatically, I don't work for these people. I'm <laughs> just, you know, sharing with you, <laughs> but it automatically shuts up. Well, no, you have a choice of every, anything you shut off. So I shut off Facebook, Twitter, and email, and I can still access everything else. Smart. Yeah. Is- it's just being willing to do it. Okay. I interrupted. Tell us your day when you do turn off the email. When I when I get away from that, and of course I've got a lot of uh, you know I've got a separate career where I'm an independent movie producer, and uh, that winds up taking far more time than I realized it was going to take. So a lot of times I spend all my day doing paperwork or stuff that's not related to writing. So uh, I don't have a typical day. My ideal day has me getting up uh, and jumping on my bicycle and going for a ride on the bike path because that's where I get my uh, ideas and I, I work through story uh, problems when I'm on my bicycle. My, my brain is just free to roam and it, and it finds the solutions to things that had me awake at night. And then, uh, then I come back and write for a few hours. Uh, I have plenty of uh, wonderful back problems and carpal tunnels. So I only have a couple of hours worth of writing in me before physically it becomes too painful. So uh, that's it. I just spend a couple of hours a day if I'm lucky. Uh, it's, it's really, I'm really disappointed in myself as I'm telling you this. I'm, I'm resolving as I speak to do a better job of scheduling my time so that I can find more time to write. Well, you're amazingly prolific and amazingly successful with the time that you have. So you're doing something right. I took some private instruction some years ago with uh, a fellow named Gerald Mundus, who's a writer's coach. And I remember his telling me that the human nervous system cannot allow you to write more than three to four hours, that you can research and edit and interview people and do all that stuff. But to actually write three to four hours is all that a human can handle. So I hope that makes you feel better. Does I, I I would have to tell him well, sure. Except for when you're in that zone. Yeah, the zone is different. <laughs> I have have lost eight hours of my. I looked up and realized the entire day has passed, and I wasn't aware of anything because I have been so. Uh, I, I've just hit the vein, and I am just mining the gold right there. And it's there's almost no more wonderful feeling. It's the it's it's what I'm addicted to as a writer is this sense that um, I'm really doing some good work here. That's and what do you think brings that on? Uh, <clears throat> honestly, uh, for me, it is um, it's letting myself realize that I've done a good job of outlining of not questioning the outline, but just plowing through it. I find that that there's a momentum I can gain. If I'm writing, when I was writing A Dog's Purpose, uh, I had an elaborate outline. It practically had every word already in it. But um, occasionally I would be writing and realize that what I was writing <laughs> wasn't very good. Uh, and that my normal reaction to that is to go back and fix what I've written. 
and I decided instead to just keep going. And I found that I could get into the zone by sheer momentum. If I put down three, four, five pages, all of a sudden uh, I was just being just being carried forward by the story to the point where I wasn't even really aware of where I was. I was just in the story. The words were flowing. Uh, and a lot of that was pure gold. But even but, you know, writing is rewriting. So the other part of my process is I, I bang out a uh, I, I, I redraft and redraft and redraft. And, and so uh, I can get in the zone fairly easily because I know I'm going to come back and rewrite that sentence three, four times easily. And yet the zone still happens. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I think if, if there were instructions, you know, ABC, people could sell that for so much money. So how is it, Bruce, writing a, a column, uh, writing for newspapers, books, television, film? It just seems that when you go from the written word to the acted word, everything is different. What's your experience? I, I don't find it to be uh, much different at all. It, it's it's certainly easier to write a, uh, a TV show or a screenplay from one aspect, which is you don't have to describe uh, much. If I write in a in a book about somebody going down to the river and getting a drink of water, I have to do a fairly good job of explaining where the person is and and uh, you know how he drinks and whether the water is cold and is it clear and there's just there are details that if they're not provided will leave the reader wanting. But in a movie, you say. He, you know, he goes down to the dr- river and takes a drink and the director's got to figure out all that stuff. You know, the director's got to find the location for that river and and it'll be up there on the screen. So uh, and also the hard part, the really hard part about writing a screenplay is that if you're at page 100 and you are not winding things up, you might as well stop. No one is going to read a 120 page screenplay. Uh, unless you have, unless your name is Cameron Crowe or something, I mean, you're James Cameron, but Bruce Cameron, no, they're not going to read a, uh, a screenplay that long. So I have to be very focused on uh, how I'm pacing the story so as to land it uh, short enough to be a, a screenplay. That's the most challenging. But I don't, I don't really feel like there's any difference between I can jump from column writing to book writing. Uh, it's all the it's all the same. It's all just it's it's just it's just mining that uh, that story and getting out what happens. Uh, that's the, that's the key, and it kind of doesn't matter what the medium is. Well, you do such an amazing job, and on this film, you and Catherine, your your wife, were co screenwriters. How did that go? Yeah, I think it's great when you're married to your writing partner because uh, there's lots of different ways you can resolve the tension between the two of you, and you can have a, a you know a romantic evening and then wind up starting to do you know discuss story. Uh, I don't know how people are, have writing partners that that they're not married to. I, I, <laughs> uh, well, that's wonderful, and I also just want to do a shout out. We certainly did when when the film was new, but. Catherine's wonderful movie, Muffin Top, A Love Story. And certainly anybody, but women in particular, if you have ever thought that your body was not the ideal sculpted form that the magazine seemed to imply it ought to be, you've got to see Muffin Top. It has a wonderful tagline, sweat is fat crying. It's funny. It's heartwarming. 
beautiful, beautiful little film. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful. And that was one of the movies that I worked on as a producer. And, and uh, so I have I, I never I never thought of myself as being anything but a writer, but I've always done something else. When I wrote A Dog's Purpose, I was uh, we were on writer's strike out here in the Hollywood, so I was allowed to work on a novel, but I was not allowed to work on anything else. Uh, but I had other stuff that I was working on. I'm also on the board of my daughter's charity. Uh, it, I seem to volunteer for things, uh, sign up for things, if you will, uh, without really considering the impact it's going to have on my day. <laughs> Well, the one thing I have learned is that I don't do boards. I was just asked to be on a board of an organization that I completely believe in. I think they're fabulous. I want them to thrive. But, I, you know, <laughs> it's good to know what you're good at, and it's good to know what you're not. So I want to ask you, Bruce, just here as our time is, is t- coming to a close, your earlier books seem to be about human relationships, family relationships, and then you kind of got more into human-dog relationships. What brought that about? Well, honestly, the whole thing started because Catherine uh, had lost her first dog, and this was a dog she adopted as, a, as an adult. The dog died unexpectedly. It was a shock. She had never felt such grief. We were only dating at the time. We were driving up the, the west coast of California, and she just couldn't get past the grief. And she said, I can never do that again. I can never have another dog. Well, I had always had dogs, and I, I was beginning to picture that, that uh, this Catherine person was going to play a major role in my life. And I didn't want that to be the end of it. I didn't want to say there will never be another dog. So I started to tell her a story. I just made a story about a dog who reincarnates and remembers <gasps> each oh. life and uh and by the end of the story not only did she feel better but she she told me she wanted to get another dog and and she liked the story so much she married me so um that was the start of a dog's purpose that's how it came together was to, it just an effort to comfort a grieving friend wow well you done good now is the newest book the midnight plan of the repo man Oh, uh, I've, I've got a couple more out since then. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I plan, oh, man, is a, a series. It's a paranormal mystery series with a lot of humor in it. Very suspenseful. It's completely different, although there is a dog in it. And the sequel, Repo Madness, just came out in August. And my, my next book will be out in May. It's called A Dog's Way Home. Um. And it is from the point of view of a dog. So uh, it, people who loved a, a Dog's Purpose will probably really appreciate that book as well. That is so beautiful. And I, I love how you have the purpose. I think when a lot of people see a dog's purpose, they think it's uh, almost subservient, like the dog is supposed to do something for us. But a dog's life has a purpose in itself as well, just as, as we do in our lives and our relationships. I cannot encourage you guys enough to read A Dog's Purpose and A Dog's Journey. See the trailer right now. See the movie when it comes out in January. It's just a heart warmer. And something, too, that I just want to say to all my wonderful animal rights colleagues, 
you know, the dog is the gateway species. And very often when you have friends and people who are just like, oh, my God, you're into animals. What's this thing you have about animals? They can understand it when it's a dog. And this film is really going to open the hearts of a lot of people as well as just give you a fabulous uh, hour and, what, (laughs) 40 minutes in a theater Bruce Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for all your wonderful work. Give my love to your beautiful wife and your wonderful dog and everybody else. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on unityonlineradio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Confucius said that to be wronged is nothing unless you continue to remember it. If we can let our past remain in the past, we are not compelled to endlessly reenact it. If we seek to understand the situations in the other person's life and put forth the effort to walk a mile in his shoes, we may be less quick to take offense at what may be directed toward us. Understand that forgiving does not mean excusing. But dwelling on past slights or offenses can never help us grow. Unforgiveness always diminishes us. An African proverb says, The one who forgives ends the quarrel. You can be a powerful agent for healing. Let go of old hurts. Let the past be the past. Forgive. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. 
empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm. 